Well, good morning. Uh, it's so good to be here with you all, whether you're here in person or on Zoom. Um, it's good to it's good to be together. There's something really just I don't know sacred that like calms my soul and grounds me, and so um, I hope you feel that as well. Uh, this morning we're going to continue on in our sermon series of following the lectionary through First John, and so uh, as we get ready to jump into that, would you join me in a word of prayer? Loving God, we are grateful uh, for this chance to be together, uh, for this chance to to look to our left and to our right or onto our screen and see sisters and brothers staring back at us. God, thank you uh, for this gift. God, as we uh, gather, we recognize that your spirit is here among us, drawing us together, uniting us, um, centering us, connecting us in a time where connection feels so sparse. God, thank you for this gift. Thank you for this mystery. And as we now turn to the scriptures, we uh, turn to your spirit and ask that your spirit would lead us and guide us and shape us and form us more and more into the image of Jesus. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we find ourselves living in a moment that has been described as post-truth. If you're not familiar with the term post-truth, we can split that up into the two words, right? Post meaning after and truth meaning some sort of like objective reality or some sort of like truth, right? (laughs) And so when we say that we find ourselves in a time that is, uh, can be described as post-truth, we mean after truth, after this objective reality. Now others uh, in commenting on uh, this reality of being in a post-truth moment have described it as a time in which objective facts and realities um, no longer influence or shape public opinion as much as things as like personal beliefs or uh, personal opinions or personal emotions. Others have described this post-truth reality as a time in which there's a a disappearance of objective shared understanding of how things work. To say that we find ourselves in a post-truth moment means that our opinions or our beliefs or our emotions quote-unquote equal facts. Now, this has become uh, a bit of a a rampant sort of phenomena for us since like 2015. It could probably be argued that it's been around since before that, but uh, we've really seen an uptick in this post-truth reality since like 2015 as we began to gear up for the 2016 election, right? Now, what we saw happening during that time was that there would be articles or stories that come out about a particular candidate who's making a run for office, and they would easily just dismiss it, saying, well, I don't agree with that, I don't believe that, that's not true. And they would encourage then everybody who was following them to agree with that and say that that's not true. And so we began to see the slipping of truth with this, this term, fake news. But then we also began to see other things like these wild and outlandish sort of conspiracy theories that have reached like their peak incarnation in QAnon, right? Where there's like uh, pretty credible ways of dismantling all of these sorts of things. And yet they've gained a bit of like a cult following and people have like committed themselves to like these emotionally charged truths for them. Um, We've also seen this throughout COVID, like questioning whether the the data or the science points to certain things or how the best way to respond to it is, or we've even seen it with the racial reckoning that we find ourselves in. Again, looking at statistics, looking at stories and saying, well, maybe I don't agree with that, so that's not truth for me. Now, if this feels a bit of like a sweeping statement to say that we find ourselves in a post-truth moment, 
In 2016, Oxford Dictionary named post-truth their word of the year because from 2015 to 2016, they saw an increase of 2,000% of that word being used in written publishing. It's been a rampant phenomenon that we continue to find ourselves in to this day. And if, uh, and as you can imagine, or maybe as you have even experienced, like you know that this is a challenging moment to be in, right? Because what this means is, is that as we interact with somebody, like we're not seeing things the same way, right? There's no longer the same sort of shared understanding of how the world works or even what it means for us to be humans, right? Like if you've ever walked away from a conversation scratching your head thinking like, we're from different planets, like that's an example of this post-truth phenomena taking place in front of you. But more than just being uh, challenging, to live in a post-truth reality is also incredibly dangerous. Because n not only do we have a different understanding of like how the world works or what it means to be human, but now we begin to see a trickle-down effect into things like ethics and values and morals and the way that we respond to certain things. So if you have a different understanding of what it means to be human or who is a human versus me, then that means that your response and the way that you treat another human can be different than me. And of course, then this can lead to all sorts of violent and destructive actions and behaviors. See, when we talk about a post-truth reality, we're talking about more than just like a difference of opinion or diverse thought. Like we're talking about a fundamental difference in how we see and exist in this world. Now, truth is such an important and vital sort of component to any sort of society because truth acts as like the bedrock, the foundation, the framework, the fabric that holds any sort of community or society together. And when this truth begins to, to, to come into question, um, it can lead to all sorts of questions about like, what is truth? What, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to live on this earth? And how do we interact with this earth? And then this can lead to all sorts of conflict if you have a different opinion about that than I do. And then as we lead to these questions and as we lead to this conflict, it has the potential of leading to something like a division where we finally just say like, we're incompatible. We're going to split. We're going to do our own thing. Now, some of this seems to be what's happening in the background within the community that 1 John is being written to. Uh, now remember, 1 John is written to a community. So it's, it's, multiple, it's, it's a network of like house churches, essentially. Like we have these smaller congregations, these smaller communities that are united in this bigger, broader community in some way. Some have suggested probably because of the author John himself. John is acting as a, a pastor, an elder, a sage to this bigger, broader community. But this community finds itself in conflict. And as this community finds itself in conflict, some have left, some have started their own thing, and now John steps in as pastor, elder, sage, trying to bring about some sort of unity to this community, trying to unite them, trying to connect them, trying to rally them together, center them around like a cohesive sort of belief in something. And as he does this, he begins to do a little bit of housekeeping throughout this, this letter as well. And so, uh, as we looked at last week, uh, John makes these sweeping claims that we belong at, we are children of one of two options. The first one being we are children, we can be children of the devil, which means like we find ourselves in this habitual pattern of sin, this like habitual disregard for God's good desires, for God's good creation. Or we can be children of God. And to be children of God means that we find ourselves doing the things that we see God doing, pursuing 
the right thing, pursuing the just thing, pursuing love itself. And John wraps all of this up by saying, for this is what we've heard from the very beginning, to love one another. Now, much of the rest of this letter is John unpacking what it means to be children of God and what it means to love one another. But before we get to any of that, let's sit with this conflict at hand. Now, while we don't know for sure what the conflict was that was existing in this community, if we read through the, line, uh, read through the lines in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and if we, we pay attention to what's happening in the broader Christian movement of the day, we begin to see that there's pretty common conflicts surrounding Jesus. Go figure. The central figure of this movement, right? And, and what appears to be one of the central conflicts is like, what is Jesus? <laughs> uh, as uh, the tradition would later uh, develop, like there's this dual nature that we see in Jesus, that Jesus is both fully God, fully divine, and fully human, fully flesh and blood. But there was a, this growing sort of like contradiction within the Christian tradition that represented a, a broader philosophy called Gnosticism. And what Gnosticism said was, no, of course Jesus isn't fully God and fully human. Like he was just fully divine. He was fully God and was like this like divine sort of hologram floating around, but didn't actually have flesh and blood. Now this comes from a deeper conviction within Gnosticism that like spirituality is good. Like abstract floating things that don't have materiality are good and anything with materiality is bad. So they say if Jesus is good, of course he can't have a flesh and blood. Of course he can't take on a body because bodies are bad, but materiality or but, but spirituality, these abstract things, these are good. Now this would lead to the sort of posture within Gnosticism that, that some were granted like special access to special knowledge or special insight, and this made them better than everybody else, right? And and oftentimes we would see them like separate themselves from the less than those that that uh, possessed the body and those that pursued material things so that they could be their sacred self. Uh, my freshman year at Bethel, uh, the school was starting an honors program. Uh, so I was invited to apply for it my senior year, but I was invited after spring break of my senior year, which meant that I had that much effort to give to applying to this. Now, I applied to it and I didn't get in, no surprise, right? And I was a bit, you know, uh, jaded about that right and so i get to campus and i've i've made my peace but then i start seeing the this group it was called build and build started doing like book discussions on their own they started taking trips on their own they started spending all of their time by themselves like they were the smart kids on campus and we were the not so smart ones right now this would have been fine Except Build started walking around campus doing this little chant where they made out an acronym of the word Build. I don't remember all of it, but the first part was B, we're better than you. Which started to ignite all of like this cynicism back within me, right? <laughs> now, end of the story. I made friends with some of them. We're all good. But this is sort of what we see happening within this Gnosticism, what could have been a Gnosticism sect within this uh, community that John is a pastor elder sage to. Some have gained this special insight, this special knowledge, this special wisdom, and they say that we are in the truth and we have separated ourselves. Now, if you can imagine, if you're in the community that remains, this leads to really vital questions like, who's in the truth? <laughs> are they in the truth? Are we in the truth? How do we know who's in the truth? And by the way, like, what is truth? Again, truth is a vital 
question because it acts like the 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 bedrock the foundation the fabric that holds everything together it it shapes our values our ethics our morals our responses our perspective to things so with all of this in mind we jump into first john chapter three now john is again continuing to unpack what it means to be a child of god and what it means to to follow god in a way of love and he's and so we pick up in 16 he says we know love by this Meaning like we know what love looks like. We know the essence of love. This is how we know what love is. That Jesus laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees anyone and sees anyone who has how does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's good and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses help? See John does here what John does best. John brings it back to Jesus. John focuses on Jesus. John centers on Jesus. And it's as if John is saying, like, if Jesus is the source of conflict, then Jesus is going to be the source out of this conflict as well. And so as John talks about being a child of God and being in love, he begins to let Jesus define what love is. And he says, as we look at the life and the teachings and the way of Jesus, this is what love is. It gives of itself. It gives of itself for the sake of others, and it gives of itself for the sake of others, leading towards healing and wholeness. This is what love is, because this is what we see in Jesus. But what about this lingering question of truth? What about this nagging question of like, okay, does any of this matter? Because we don't even know if we're in the truth. And so John continues on, and he says, Little children, let us love one another not in word or speech, but in truth and action. And by this, we know that we are from the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Do you see what John has just done here? John takes this this looming question of truth and connects it with this example that we see in Jesus of living out a life of love. John has just made this sweeping connection to unite the thing of truth, this like elusive sort of thing that we're pursuing with this concrete reality that we see in Jesus of a life of love that gives of itself for the sake of others, leading towards healing and wholeness. John has just said, if you want to know if you're in the truth, ask if you're in the love. Ask if you are living a life of love like Jesus. Love and truth, truth and love. These two things go hand in hand. Now, this may seem like a pretty bold sort of connection for John to make. So why can John make this leap? Well, because when John sees Jesus, he sees a really big deal. (laughs) Because when John sees Jesus, he describes it like this in his opening chapter of his gospel. He says, Jesus is the word. This term that means like logic itself, reason itself, rationality itself, the fabric that holds the universe together. When, when we see Jesus, we see the word made flesh living among us, full of grace and truth. When John sees Jesus, he sees the embodiment of reason, logic, rationality, the fabric that holds everything together. He sees the embodiment of truth. And so if we want to know if we're in the truth, we ask, what was Jesus doing? And Jesus was loving. So 
John comes to this community that's in conflict, uh, asking with all of this confusion, asking these questions of, about what is truth and how do we know if we're in the truth? Are they in the truth? Are we in the truth? And it's as if John says, if you want to know if you want to know if you're in the truth, here's how you know if you're in the truth. Are you in love? Are you pursuing a life of love? See, truth isn't some sort of abstract idea or concept. But truth is love being lived out in flesh and blood. Truth and love are these united things. Truth is love being lived out in flesh and blood, a love that gives of itself for the sake of others, leading towards healing and wholeness. This is what truth is. Love is at the center of all things. It's the bedrock of all things. It's the fabric, the foundation that holds all things together. This is the ultimate reality. This is the core of all things around us and within us. Love is truth. Truth isn't some sort of abstract idea or concept, but truth is love being lived out in flesh and blood. So we find ourselves in this moment that's been described as post-truth. And I don't know about you, but I've had a lot of interactions lately where I uh, scratch my head and think, what is truth? (laughs) What is truth? What a fascinating question. We see this question popping up towards the end of Jesus's life in John 18. Pilate comes to Jesus and Pilate, you can tell, is just completely frazzled at this moment. He comes to Jesus and says, are you the king of the Jews? Like, just just shoot straight with me here. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, like my followers would be barging in trying to save me. And Pilate's like, okay, dude, I'm losing some patience. Like, are, are you king? Uh, so you are a king? And Jesus says, you say I am. But this is why I've come into the world. To testify, to witness to the truth. And Pilate just shrugs his shoulders and says, what is truth? I don't know if you've ever felt like Pilate in this moment. Like Pilate has the weight of the Roman Empire, the world superpower of the day on his shoulders, and he's looking at this powder keg of insurrection waiting to be exploded right in front of him. And truth feels so incredibly elusive. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel the pressures of life and I feel the pressures of what's happening in the world around me, and truth can feel really elusive. And I can be like Pilate asking what is truth, missing out on the fact that the embodiment of truth is standing right in front of me in the person of Jesus. And so when we find ourselves in these moments asking what is truth, maybe a better question to ask ourselves is, what does love being lived out in flesh and blood right here, right now, look like? Because again, truth isn't an abstract idea or concept, but truth is love being lived out in flesh and blood. So when we come to really complicated sort of situations happening in our country, like this racial reckoning that we find ourselves in, maybe rather than asking the question of what is truth, asking for data and stories and like hardcore facts and evidence, maybe a better question, particularly for those of us who are white, is a question of what does love being lived out in flesh and blood look like right here, right now? Meaning rather than pursuing stories or facts or hardcore evidence that can uh, uh, point us to one sort of like worldview or another, what does it look like for us to stand in solidarity with our sisters and brothers of color and perhaps use whatever privilege we may have that leads towards love, a giving of ourselves for the sake of others that leads towards healing and wholeness? 
both for our sisters and brothers of color, but also for a system that apparently doesn't uh, think that black lives matter. Or what about when we're asking questions about like our own self-worth? Or like whether we're capable of things like love and value? What if instead of asking what is truth, trying to grab onto some sort of elusive abstract idea or concept about ourselves, we instead ask what does love being lived out in flesh and blood look like right here, right now? Because perhaps there's relationships, habits, and patterns in our life that aren't leading towards healing and wholeness in our life. And maybe truth looks like stepping away from those and moving towards relationships that do lead towards healing and wholeness for us. And when we pursue these sorts of relationships, we discover the truth about ourselves. Or perhaps when we're asking these really deep sort of existential questions about like the shape and the direction and the purpose of our lives, instead of asking what is truth, hoping to grab some sort of abstract, elusive concept or idea, we ask what does love being lived out in flesh and blood look like right here? right now. And perhaps as we pursue a life of love that gives of ourselves for the sake of others leading towards healing and wholeness, perhaps in that moment we discover why God put us on this earth to begin with. And we begin to discover the shape and the direction and the meaning and purpose of our lives. So friends, what if truth wasn't some sort of abstract idea or concept, but what if truth was love being lived out in flesh and blood? And what if we allowed this understanding of like fundamental reality to shape and form our understanding and our pursuit and our direction in life. And what if as we did all of this, we trust as John says in chapter 3 verse 24 that as we find ourselves in truth, as we find ourselves in love, that we find ourselves in Christ and Christ with us. And this Truth doesn't have to be this elusive thing, but we know that Christ is there beside us, leading us and guiding us and shaping us more and more into the way of truth and the way of love. Let's pray. Loving God, we are grateful for Jesus who came and took on flesh. The bigness, the boldness, the grandness, the word made flesh to live among us, full of truth, to point us towards truth. Not as some sort of abstract idea or concept, but to point us towards love being lived out in flesh and blood, a love that gives of ourselves for the sake of others, leading towards healing and wholeness. And God, as we're gathered together today, to be part of the family of God, to be part of the children of God. And as John tells us that to be part of the children of God means to love, to be in truth. Spirit, would you empower us and lead us and guide us and shape us and form us to pursue that with all that we have. To live out a life of love and flesh and blood right here, right now. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.